Today on My Climate Journey's startup series, we have Chris Tolles, CEO and co-founder of Yardstick PBC, which stands for Public Benefits Corporation. Yardstick is aiming to be the measurement backbone for soil carbon. Their handheld hardware enables on-site measurement of soil carbon in agricultural fields, and their software package provides data and analytics that help stakeholders in a soil carbon project to measure and track progress. As Chris tells it, the Yardstick co-founders got to know one another in the MCJ member community during the pandemic lockdowns in 2020. And MCJ is a proud multi-time investor in Yardstick. Even with all that, I still learned a ton from Chris during this conversation. When I think of MRV, or measurement reporting and verification technologies, I tend to think of technology that helps to support carbon credit sales. But as Chris explains, the voluntary carbon market is just one pathway for soil carbon project development. Another that is seeing strong early traction is insetting, where food and agriculture companies are beginning to measure and attempt to reduce the carbon intensity of their own agricultural supply chains. They aren't selling credits, rather, they're starting to make progress on directly reducing the emissions of how their food is grown, which is great news. Chris charts his background and experience and then explains what soil carbon is and why it matters, helping to put the efforts that Yardstick is doing into the context of the broader global carbon cycle. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. But before we start... I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. Chris, welcome to the show. Howdy. Thanks for having me. Uh, Chris, I feel like this recording is a long time coming and I'm excited we are, we're finally doing it. Boy, I have so many questions for you, so I'm excited to dive in. Maybe first of which is kind of diving into your background. You have done lots of different things and soil organic carbon seems like a relatively recent one of those things. So maybe walk us through your history and how you ultimately came to focus on this problem. Yeah, it is a brand new thing for me. I have no background in any of this. My GM has been science commercialization for a while, but not because that's what I intended to do in life. I went to art school undergrad. I went to Rhode Island School of Design. I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in making furniture. But even then I knew like, hey, I want to use design problem solving to like do better in the world. I started in humanitarian relief. I think I had a very sort of naive, what's better than that worldview. And that was fine, but it didn't serve me very well in terms of accountability. A lot of awesome people trying to do great work there, but thankfully at the same time discovered this sort of emerging like social business, social enterprise movement that was basically saying, hey, you know, could the tools of business be used to solve many of these same problems of fundamental human need, et cetera. So I had a very early career experience where I was the first employee of a startup doing a solar cooker, not photovoltaic, but big paraboloid, take this much sunlight, put it into this much space and things get hot. 
And that was my first experience of science commercialization. And that's really continued to be my jam. I realized I have a gift for taking things out of the lab and into the real world. My design worldview, I think, makes me an intuitive ethnographer. Like I like understanding other people and their needs. So even though I don't draw or use CAD, I still very much self-identify as a designer. And at least the last few uh, professional experiences of my life have all been around this theme of be the business guy. There's scientists in the world who do great work. How do we bring it to the real world of customers and markets? And how can I be a partner for them to basically like figure out how money works, <laughs> I think, to, to overgeneralize. And I know part of what you did early on was you worked at the growth and innovation consulting firm founded by Clayton Christensen of uh, Harvard Business School, the, the innovator's dilemma guy, I guess is how I think of him. Exactly. Yeah. And he was that guy and he was a guy. He was a remarkable human being. He co-founded the consultancy called InnoSight here in Boston. That was immediately after business school. So that first entrepreneurial experience taught me how important business is. We were all like product people. And that meant the product was really cool. There's this thing around a product called a business model, which really matters. And I came to the conclusion, hey, if I want to have impact, I got to be as comfortable designing that as I am designing the thing. Uh, so after my MBA, I joined Clay's firm. And it was a great experience in terms of giving me exposure to how normal people think about the world. I was definitely in like a design bubble prior. It was amazing in terms of content. It was all innovation and growth stuff for big companies who classically can't do that very well. Culturally, it was kind of a bummer. I'm not a management consultant at heart. I want to do the thing. But the tragic part about consulting is you give other people advice and then they take it or don't. And I kept being like, man, I think I could do that better myself. So left the firm to focus more on like being a doer rather than a recommender towards others and haven't looked back since. I describe myself as a recovering management consultant and that the like structured thinking part of what we did there is still very much part of my identity and my work style. But man, is it great to know that when you conclude something, you can just like decide to do it yourself. And that's been a much better fit for me since then. And then your first company that you started was in the food and drug space would be the right way to describe it. Boy, I'm sure you had quite a steep learning curve going to build that. Yeah, totally. It was, companies called Sun Daily, uh, started as Sun Dots. We were threatened with a lawsuit by the owner of the Dots trademark. So I can go deep on trademark conflict and the existential uncertainty of renaming a company midstream. But that was in many ways the same exact story of Yardstick in that it was science commercialization. In this case, it was a dermatology researcher from Harvard Medical School here at, in Boston, incredible woman named uh, Milia Javorsky. But it was totally different in that it was a consumer product, it was brand-led, it was subscription e-commerce, and much similar, much in the same way the Yardstick formed, she was like, hey, here's literature, like this totally works. Uh, the premise was an ingestible sun protection product. So they were gummies, it's edible sunscreen. It's a pretty trippy plant compound called polypodium leucotomos extract. Not trippy in the psychoactive sense, but trippy in the incredible sense. And she's like, hey, here's some literature. Like you eat this and it works like sunscreen. And I was like, that's nonsense, but I'll read the literature. And then I read the literature and it wasn't nonsense. So I was like, holy moly, this is a game changer. We don't have enough time for me to sit on the therapist's couch of everything that made Sunday Light painful company. Suffice to say, a lot of it was, as you suspect, a steep learning curve. 
to figure out how to run a company that's got a foot in dietary supplements, which is almost categorically like a pretty bullshit market, and a foot in the beauty sector because the most passionate sun protection consumers in America are largely women buying in sort of like a skincare, cosmetics, beauty angle. It totally worked. I, so I sold the company in early 2020. But to this day, more than three years later, like my kids take it. I'm bringing some to Hawaii tomorrow with my family. So didn't sell the company because I wasn't confident in the product. It's totally legit. It exists in this awkward nether realm of supplement drug interaction stuff, but was a, a remarkable first founding CEO experience of just all the fundamentals of how to build a company. And when I sold that company, I was like, that was awesome. I never want to do another consumer product, but the parts that were awesome were this like science commercialization premise. You sold the company in 2020 and Yardstick was founded in 2020. So you made a pretty quick personal pivot into a totally different space. What did that, uh, what did that entail? Yeah. So well, according to the state of Delaware, we were founded January 1st, 2021. Relationally, it started in 2020, uh, much thanks to you and the, the broader MCJ squad. This is maybe June, July. And the acquisition of the company was a brand acquisition. Like they didn't want me. I'm a mediocre e-commerce entrepreneur. The acquirer, Grove Collaborative, online retailer, sort of Whole Foodsy. They had plenty of those. So my earnout was pretty brief. And I decided I definitely want to do that again. That being co-founding a company alongside a scientist, but I only want to look at climate. Summer 2020 was not like ideal networking phase, shall we say. So what whereas I would normally be trying to like buy postdocs a beer around Cambridge. Instead, I was like, uh-oh, I've got the internet. How can I use that instead? And so the MCJ Slack group was, was sort of my hunting ground. And I approached it in a pretty mercenary sense. Like I wanted to start another company. And so I was just looking for people who could be my counterpart. And I found one. He is my now illustrious hardware co-founder, Kevin, our CTO. And he had already built a relationship with Christine Morgan, the, the lead scientist for all this work who has been toiling in the lab for pretty literally 15 years before we came along. So MCJ, summer 2020, I like, I love working on meaningful things. So like, especially some of the like existential angst of COVID, like what am I doing? Am I contributing? I was very happy to get back into a, a full-time experience. I can definitely attest to in those lockdown months of 2020 when so much was going on in the MCJ Slack. And, in, you know, I remember weekend meetups around different climate topics that we were all jumping onto Zooms for and whatnot. And you were there at every single one of them. You were so plugged into what was going on. I was. It's also a good fit for my personality. I love meeting other people. I love learning from other people. Some people like don't like networking. And I'm like, I get it. You don't. I do. I, I call it making friends. And this was just like a great way to make a bunch of friends. So Kevin and I met through MCJ, co-founder dated all fall. This kind of effectively included co-founder dating with Christine because she's the science. She's where it's all coming from. In fall 2020, we got a big ARPA-E award, the Department of Energy's R&D fund. And that's really when it was like, all right, there's a thing popping here. I had known jo Jason locally here in Boston. I had met some BEV people locally. Uh, and so everything kind of came together fall, winter to form the company in January and then close a pre-seed in February 21. Which MCJ, of course, was uh, excited to participate in. And we're very grateful that you included us from the very beginning. Very much so. And more than participate, but participate relationally, pull other people in. I have my relationship with Lower Carbon to thank MCJ for. Um, that was a, a pretty remarkable few months of pulling it together. And the sense that we were building a cool thing in the Boston area, too. Despite the fact that we're a remote first company and I'm the only one here, 
I love the sort of like always underdog vibe of Boston. I think we are higher performing per capita than the Bay. And it was really neat to pull together Petrie and MCJ and BV, who have a very strong Boston premise to kick off the company in early 21. So with that, you obviously, during this time of heavy exploration and whatnot, come into this thing, like, I'm going to build a company in soil organic carbon. You said, I want to build a science-based company in climate change broadly. You could have gone so many different directions. How did the problem of soil organic carbon jump to the top of your list? I think there's kind of three things. Is it an inspiring opportunity? The second is, is there chemistry like with people? Because all this is is people at the end of the day. And then the third is like timing. So on the first, Kevin and I both found this chart, which we can include in the show notes if you want. And it's basically like the x-axis is gigatons per year, you know, removal potential, talking about CDR uh, for a moment. And the y-axis is cost. We want the bottom right. We want like a lot and we want it cheap. And there's a box in the bottom right of this plot and it's labeled soil carbon. And so Kevin and I both looked at that and we were like, huh, how do we get that box? That's the good box. And Kevin, being a wonderfully first principles guy, was like, I'm going to figure out what's holding that back. And there are many things that are holding that back, but arguably a central, if not the central one of them is measurement. So that was the just like, is it big enough to matter perspective? And yes, is it three? Is it six? Who cares? It's big enough to, to matter. The second piece is chemistry. I love Kevin Meissner. He's a righteous dude. I really respect him. It's classic complementary skill sets. He's got prior co-founding experience. He co-founded Charm. He was at Planet Labs for 10 years. He was at SpaceX. He can like build anything. And so he could really understand, oh, I'm not going to be the CEO. I don't want to do business things. I want to do engineering things. You know, similarly, I know my way around a machine shop more so than the average, like quote unquote business guy, which I think is a good part of our friendship. But ultimately, yeah, we really understood what the other had to offer. And then Christine, I've met a lot of scientists in my life who want to contribute to company formation, form a company themselves. And ultimately, you're giving somebody your baby. And that's a really, really hard, scary thing to do. And Christine was very self-aware that we were going to form an organization that was going to advance it. And we were going to advance it with her contribution, support, advisement. But like, She's a full-time research scientist and she doesn't want to be otherwise. So there was a, a real remarkable sort of triumvirate of Kevin, Christine, and I, I think each looking at the other and be like, I kind of just met you. I don't know, like, what's the downside? Let's give it a try. And that third piece of timing, especially 2021, Indigo was blowing up. There was a lot of visibility around soil carbon just as an opportunity. Timing from a technological maturity perspective, Christine, again, I've been working on this for 15 years. This isn't, oh, she published a paper. Good science happens slowly. It's a body of evidence. She'd published many, many papers. The field of soil spectroscopy was its own thing, independent of her individual opinion. And she was at the right point in her career where she's remarkably successful. And she's, she's editor-in-chief of Geoderma, top soil science journal in the world. And so she's like, another paper is not going to like get me excited. Like Papers are great, but... She, I think, rightly perceived the gap between doing great original science and then seeing things with real impact that make a difference in people's lives in the real world. And somehow I convinced her in fall 2020 that like, I could help her bridge that gap. So that was that third piece of timing. It was, it was ready uh, in a whole bunch of ways. And Christine's now gone on. She's now the chief scientific officer at the Soil Health Institute, I believe. Was she already in that role when you all uh, started working on this? 
Yeah, maybe for a year or two. I don't remember exactly. It was relatively recent. She had done most of the prior academic research while at Texas A&M, tenured, again, fancy, but that was a more recent career transition for her. And she is still the CSO at SHI, which has expanded dramatically under her leadership. And her research interests lie far beyond soil carbon measurement exclusively. We joke with some frequency that it's called the Soil Health Institute and not the Soil Carbon Institute for a reason. But this aspect of measuring soil carbon with spectroscopy was one of her central research uh, interests over the years. Well, let's set the table a little bit on soil carbon. So some basic Googling before our conversation helped me see that there's somewhere just under 3,000 gigatons of carbon stored in soils. We think somewhere, I mean, you know, none of these numbers are ever going to be exactly accurate, right? But somewhere in that ballpark, which is significantly more than in the atmosphere. Yeah, many times that. Thankfully, (laughs) let's keep it that way. (laughs) It's also a drop in the bucket relative to carbon in the ocean, but in the ocean is mostly inorganic material, as I understand it, whereas in the soil, you have actual either living or recently deceased carbon material, which is, I guess, the definition of soil organic carbon. Is that correct? It basically means like, where does it come from? Does it come from an organic source or an inorganic source? Is it a compound that was previously the body of a worm or a plant? Or is it typically carbonates or bicarbonates in soil, which are formed through chemical processes rather than biological processes? And is the bulk of this in the soil because due to photosynthesis, like plants absorbing CO2, pushing it down into their roots, and then the roots becoming the feedstock and foodstuffs of these microorganisms and bugs and things like that. And so the soil, the carbon just essentially stays in the soil as a result. Measuring back to the beginning of time, the short answer is, I don't know. I focus more on how stocks and flows change today. By definition, anything organic in nature is a product of an organic process. So whether it's a tree, a dinosaur a bazillion years ago, an earthworm yesterday, everything that's organic carbon in nature is some way connected to a biological cycle. Today, certainly photosynthesis is one of the key carbon inputs to soil carbon stocks. So almost any plant in the world, there are non-photosynthetic plants I have learned, which are pretty wild, but almost any plant in the world consumes CO2 as part of photosynthesis. That's kind of part of its food. When a plant sucks up CO2, It has its own biogeochemical process within its body, so to speak, and a portion of the C of that CO2 ends up coming out through its roots, for example, what are called root exudates. It has many different interactions with other parts of the soil cycle, but certainly CO2 in the air is sort of the the input piece. And then organic carbon compounds that are fixed in soils travel a bunch of different pathways between the air and the soil. Nonetheless, that's certainly where most of it starts for new flows into soil today. And then in terms of where the challenges lie, I've read that somewhere, and this is a very broad number here, somewhere between 50 to 100 gigatons of carbon has been released from the soil into the atmosphere over the last 100, 150 years during the Industrial Revolution, essentially. And I presume that is mostly due to agriculture, which now covers somewhere around 10% of Earth's land. Yeah, so one thing to remember is that soils are deeply connected to row cropping contexts like corn and soy, ranching, grazing contexts, beef most visibly, but certainly any grazing animals. Also produce, tomatoes have soil. Uh, Lastly, people forget that there are soils in forests. Of forest carbon stocks, most of it is actually soil. So 
Yes, industrialized agriculture is rightly pointed to as one of the key human changes on Earth that are releasing soil carbon stocks, but deforestation does that as well. Anytime there is soil present in an ecosystem, there are soil carbon stocks because all soils, by definition, have living matter. Therefore, they have organic carbon cycles as part of their ecology. I will say that the broad strokes of like, hey, the things we've done in industrial agriculture are one of the most visible causes of soil carbon stock losses, especially in the U.S. That makes sense because in prior episodes of the pod, we've talked about forestry and and have discussed how forest carbon credits mostly are uh, sold as avoidance credits today, which is trying to measure the amount of soil carbon that would be released were this tree to be cut down. So I think that goes exactly with what you're saying there. Exactly. And to be clear, our work so far has largely focused on agricultural contexts. Forestry has soils, and so it's absolutely like in our ambition to activate it. But that largely in the past, the soil carbon stock of a forest system has kind of been ignored because it's really hard to measure. So with the agricultural context sort of column, I guess, of discussion here, and thanks for helping us to see the broader picture, but we're going to now narrow our focus into ag. What have been the primary practices or drivers that have contributed to lower amounts of soil carbon? And what are some of the practices and drivers that are currently being promoted as ways to increase soil carbon stocks? Yeah, so certainly most visibly and understandable to non-soil scientists is the premise of tillage. We've probably all seen the photo of a plow. You're like mixing up the soil, you're turning it over. That has incredible value. That's why we do it so much. So to be clear, it's really, really good at some important things. It helps aerate the soil, reduces compaction, it kills weeds. These are all good things. Unfortunately, it also like turns the house upside down. If you imagine soil microbiology as like your house got turned upside down, you would be very unhappy. So when you take organisms that would otherwise be happy living 20 centimeters, 30 centimeters underground, and then you put them at the surface, they're like, hey, what the hell? This is like a totally different place. I don't want to live here. And so many of the processes, the microbiological ecologies of soil, which happen successfully underground, don't happen successfully when they're exposed to air and sunlight. So decomposition of organic carbon compounds on the surface, which are then released as CO2 or other greenhouse gases, is directly a product of tillage which is not the boogeyman. This is the challenge. We've been doing all these things for like good reason. And we can't stop doing these things, generally speaking, without some cost or complexity to the system. Certainly, there's some controversy around the specifics of a causal relationship, but many people suspect that the same kind of industrial agricultural boogeyman of over-application of synthetic fertilizers, over-application of pesticides and herbicides, soils are alive. And so it's hard to kill one thing without killing other things. Those are kind of maybe two great categories of things that they're confidently pointed to as a source of a reduction in stocks, as well as, to be clear, things that humans don't do. One challenging feedback loop here is that as the planet warms on average, there's likely to be increased natural respiration of organic carbon stocks. You could say, hey, if it's anthropogenic in nature, it's, it's our fault as well, but it's less directly a product of an agricultural management choice. Well, and I would presume as well, as the planet warms and there's more drought, there's challenges with, in some cases, too much water, in some cases, too little water, that also might kill whatever lives underground as well. Totally. And broadly speaking, too little water is a broader problem. 
again, overgeneralization, but like things don't live very well without water on, on earth, especially terrestrial things. Fish don't mind, but soil microbes like kind of have to be wet to do their thing. That's why a desert is often lighter colored. You'll have a lot less organic matter, a lot less organic activity, lower organic carbon content. And so oftentimes a pet peeve of mine is the like regen egg. Let's look at these two farms side by side. And the one on the left is brown and the one on the right is dark, you know, and thriving and green. A lot of times that just means that like the one on the right is irrigated and the one on the left is not. Like it's not like it may have nothing to do with the fact that you till or you don't till. It might just be that like you stole the water. And that's where, yeah, a lot of the complexity is introduced because we sometimes really understand what's causal and oftentimes we don't. And so as I understand Yardstick's business to be, you almost don't care. Is this farm doing till or no till? Are they doing biochar? Are they doing some kind of crazy new treatment that people want to experiment with? Your job is to measure if it's working or not. Exactly, yeah. I think I would say in the short term, my business model doesn't care. I'm a measurement services company. It's really important to our scientific integrity that we get paid to measure things. People are always surprised. Offsets are one part of our business. There's lots of non-offset stuff we do, but nonetheless, offsets are part of our business. Hey, why don't you just like take a cut of that high quality soil carbon offset that gets sold? Imagine how that messes up the incentives. Who would ever trust my measurement technology if the way I made money was saying, yes, there's a whole bunch of tons here. So we get paid for measurement services. I say I don't care in the sense that my business model doesn't in the short term and that if all we're measuring is unsuccessful projects, like I'm sort of bummed, both from an impact perspective and frankly, I'm probably going to go out of business because eventually people will be like, nope, soil carbon can't go the distance. You can argue that there's just like a monitoring aspect to what we're doing, but it's certainly a lot more inspiring to think that we're an enabler of, wow, X does work. Y really can turn the trend around. So that caveat aside, yeah, you're right. I don't care. Not my problem. It's my customer's problem. But when you're a business, your customer's problems are your problems. Though it seems like some of the solutions maybe stop doing some of this and some of those solutions maybe start doing some of that. And from that perspective, you don't have a dog in the fight, I guess. No. And oftentimes customers come to us with these are usually called like management plans or transition plans. Sometimes customers come to us with very credible plans and sometimes they come to us with like kind of cockamamie plans. And like, we always like want to be a friend and a partner, but we're sometimes like, I don't know if that's going to work, but like, I'm going to get paid. And ultimately my job is to help you understand, does that work or does that not that work? I will say that like within the domain of, hey, what could be different? What are the solutions? There are pretty clearly two buckets of solutions the first, let's call like management practices. And these are things that don't require quote unquote technology. Hey, if tillage is net bad, let's do less of it or do less of it in the right circumstances with the right complementary changes. If we are applying too much herbicide, let's do less. Intercropping, you know, agroforestry, all this cool stuff, you know, relatively low tech. And the second bucket, some of the literature calls like frontier technologies, which is Andes bio, loam bio, locusts, even enhanced rock weathering, right? You've had lithos and undo or ion on. These are folks where there is more fundamental, quote unquote, tech risk or science risk. And that means these are some folks that are coming to us and they're like, hey, I mean, they're telling their VCs that it's going to work. Of course they do. That's their job, yourself included, perhaps. But we all know there's a lot of uncertainty. And so our job is to help separate the wheat from the chaff, both when we're talking about 
the multivariate complexity of management practices and the more fundamental scientific uncertainty of some of these emergent technologies. And if Yardstick didn't exist, how have these claims been measured historically? It's either done poorly or it's done very expensively. The spatial variability of soil carbon is a central challenge. Imagine a stadium filled with a zillion different permutations of people. Every skin color, every eye color, every hair color, every height. You would have to grab a whole bunch of people in order to describe the population, the whole stadium well. Now imagine a stadium that's only one skin color and only two eye colors. All of a sudden you're like, oh, phew, I don't have to grab so many people. Soil carbon is the former. There's insane spatial variability, and so you need a lot of samples to capture the variability, to touch a lot of parts of the field. If each of those points is very expensive, which they are with conventional laboratory analysis, and you're always budget constrained, what are you going to do? You're just going to grab a few. By samples, you mean historically, you're literally going and digging up core samples from the farm. Exactly. You're taking a stainless steel cylinder, maybe two inches in diameter, and you are slamming it into the ground, removing that soil and sending it to the lab, which will then tell you something about that soil. Hey everyone, I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. These are consultants that the farm has hired in order to be able to essentially be able to justify selling an offset of soil carbon that they are capturing on their farmland. So historically, soil carbon offsets have not like existed. So most soil sampling has been for other purposes, namely crop nutrition. So sometimes farmers will sample their own land. More commonly, though, it's your agronomist. It's the person who's going to be giving you advice about, for example, how much fertilizer to buy. They grab a few, they send it to the lab. The advent of soil carbon offsets as an opportunity have really changed the calculus on conventional sampling's insufficiency, because all of a sudden you're very sensitive to that spatial variability. So before it was are my yields going to be correct? And how much money am I spending on these inputs I'm going to put on my soil? Now it's, oh, I have another whole potential revenue stream for my farm that I want to manage. Exactly. And imagine the so what of high spatial variability nitrogen sampling. If you don't have variable rate fertilizing equipment, it doesn't matter that you've got a much better sense of the spatial variability of nitrogen in your field. And like with all due respect to the remarkable farmers of the world, the detailed arithmetic between nitrogen values and nitrogen application is like generous. It's a thing that has historically been considered a super cheap insurance policy, especially when it's cheap, loaded up. So like kind of who cares if you don't understand nitrogen values all that well, putting aside the question of whether 
nitrogen is even one thing, which it's not. It's not unknowable, but the way to use sampling to inform a sophisticated nitrogen application prescription has just not been a pain point historically. We're talking about a product that honestly for many, many years was about throwing truckloads of cow manure out onto the field. Getting super precise about that obviously hasn't been the thing that people have done until quite recently. Totally. And if a thing is relatively cheap and psychologically the source of a lot of reassurance, who the hell are you to like try and trim back on that? No, you don't. Whereas soil carbon offsets come around and now the burden of characterizing soil carbon stocks and changes precisely goes up dramatically for two reasons. Number one, the methodology prescribes it because you need to do good science for these to have any credibility in market in the face, especially of a lot of the criticism of nature-based solutions of the past. And two, the absolute magnitude of change is very small. And so if the change is small, your baseline and your remeasure period in the future need to be very precise. Otherwise, you literally can't see that small change. And that's really when the insufficiency has become ever more evident of conventional sampling. I want to dig into exactly what you just said. But before we do that, you had said expensively or poorly. The expensively is you got to send people out to the field, put these cores in, take truck them to a lab, analyze them. It sounds like you've got to do a lot of it if you want to measure well. I would think Yardstick still has a lot of that challenge, except that you're getting data in real time without having to send it off to a lab. Then we'll get there, I'm assuming. On the poorly side, is it just cut back on costs so you do fewer core samples? Yeah, if we agree that for this amount of land, you should take you know 100 samples to do it well, the way to do it well is unacceptably expensive. All 100? Oof, maybe I invest in that for my dissertation. The way to do it poorly is, if you're looking at that, you say like, eh, how about five? So the individual point data at each of those five points might be acceptable, but it doesn't describe the population. And remember, it's the population, it's the stadium that we're trying to describe. And what about solutions that are saying, oh, we'll use satellite imagery or we'll use drones to go figure this sort of stuff out using some kind of fancy imaging technologies? So soil carbon is underground and satellites can't see underground. It's kind of that basic. And anybody that's using remote sensing data for soil carbon will acknowledge that plain fact. Generally, what they'll say is that things that are observable above ground are predictive of below ground things. Uh, Let's use a better example of forestry. Trees are above ground. Things above ground can see them decently. And if one can understand, for example, a biomass relationship between above ground biomass and below ground biomass, maybe you can actually predict how much wood is in there quite well. I'm not an expert, but I trust people who say that you can. The predictive power of the thing you can observe, the above ground tree, and the thing you can't observe, the below ground biomass roots, is strong. In soil carbon, we just don't have that relationship. So folks will use things like NDVI, which is sort of like how much stuff is growing there, like how green is that pixel? Is there a relationship between the amount of above-ground biological activity as represented by green leaves and below-ground soil carbon stocks? Of course. Is observing that detail sufficient to characterize it? No way. So often people look at modeling and remote sensing companies and they perceive them as our competitors. And they're not. They know this problem as much as we do. They're our customers. They need us to calibrate their models. The point is not that it's impossible to model soil carbon stocks and changes. The point is it's impossible to do it well without high quality ground truth data. And that's what we produce. Let's then describe what Yardstick is. 
yardstick is in situ reflectance spectroscopy for soil carbon. So in situ means in-field, on the farm. We like walk around, we ATV around, and we can include a a video of the probe in, in the show notes if you like. Reflectance means we are shining a light on the soil and then measuring how much light comes back. And then spectroscopy means the fancy video camera that does that measurement. So in the video, you'll see it looks like a big ass hand drill. As we drill into the soil, there is a sapphire lens at the tip of the probe, which is underground. It's recording a movie as it goes underground. In uh, the video, it'll probably be our 45 centimeter embodiment. So you see a movie of the soil profile for 45 centimeters. And from that movie, we measure the same stuff that a lab does. We just do it non-destructively. We're not pulling soil out of the ground. You're not sending anything to a lab, which is why it's substantially cheaper. We do have to sample conventionally to train our spectroscopy. We are still taking conventional samples, but the point is, like most you know, machine learning approaches, you invest in training data so that you can then rely on that going forward. That's our fundamental piece of hardware. At the same time, we're building the software infrastructure that makes that information useful. So again, I can include a link to an example stock report, but our customers are not buying our spectrometers, they're buying measurement services, The hardware in C2 spectroscopy makes it cheap, and the software makes it authoritative, includes chain of custody, auditability, and that's sort of the trust backbone, which is arguably as important as low cost. So you have a probe, essentially, that goes into the ground, shines some light around, looks at what's going on, takes video of it, that collects data, it's internet connected, it shoots the data back up to your software package that provides a dashboard to the farm owner and presumably to any other participants that have economic sort of skin in the game in that data and helps them normalize it both for that sample as well as understand it across the different samples you've taken on that farm. Exactly. Yeah. Only asterisks are it doesn't have to be internet connected in real time. Many of these remote ranches, especially, or the Amazonian jungle, don't have Wi-Fi. So we can do all this work locally. And then, you know, classically, the next time you hop on Wi-Fi, it'll sync to the cloud. And the other is that our customer is more typically an intermediary, a project developer, a brand, co-op, rather than the farmer or rancher themselves. We don't sell directly to almost any land managers themselves because they only have an economic incentive to invest in soil carbon data if they've already committed to a program. Therefore, it's the program operator, the Indigo's the world, the Trutera's the world, the Organic Organic Valley is a customer. I'm on land with dairyman Cody who sells milk to Organic Valley, but it's really Organic Valley who's my paying customer. And are they doing it for both the idea that they might be buying or selling a carbon offset around soil organic carbon, or they might just be wanting to make claims about their own product in terms of its carbon intensity. Exactly. The premise of Yardstick is this data is valuable for lots of different people for lots of different reasons. Because Indigo is so visible, it's helpful for us to be able to explain our service in the context of offsets. But Organic Valley isn't selling offsets. Organic Valley is trying to decarbonize its own agricultural supply chain, which we want. All the criticisms of offsets offloading the burden are great criticisms. I still think they're important. But nonetheless, when we get to work with an organic valley who's like, holy moly, 85% of my emissions are scope three, they realize I can incentivize work from home all day long and like it won't move the needle. 
The only thing that matters is what's the carbon intensity of the milk I'm buying. That means I need to press down into my supply chain. And today I have a quality and food safety requirement. And now I'm like, hey, everybody, I'm going to need you to get religion around carbon intensity because that's the only way I, Organic Valley, am going to hit my typically SPT aligned net zero goal. In their mode, they're trying to measure the cropland that the cattle themselves are grazing on to understand the carbon intensity of the agricultural practices that the cattle feed is ultimately driving. Bingo. Yep. They follow the carbon through their supply chain. So you could call them an insetter. Folks also call this scope three work. In many ways, it's the exact same thing that an indigo is doing. Just indigo wants to sell offsets. Organic Valley, so to speak, wants to commission low carbon intensity milk. So that ton is unlikely to leave Organic Valley as an asset that's sold to anybody else. And as you point out, it also enables them to make claims in the future around carbon neutrality or reduction of emissions. That's a fraught world, absolutely. But fundamentally, we love insiders because they're dealing with their own backyard. They're cleaning up their own trash. And that's a lot more inspiring than what offsets. When you started the company, did you have any sense that this is how your market would develop in front of you? I was smart enough about some of the history of offset markets to know that they were pretty shaky. And many times when they look great, they're actually pretty shaky. So it was pretty much a foregone conclusion from the beginning of the company that if high quality offset markets continue to grow, great. Like it's our job to enable, especially in soil, nature-based solutions that respond to the sins of the past. Within nature-based solutions broadly, all the other founders I work with are like, oh yeah, all those articles are spot on. We're just trying to do it better. And I love that. Like, yeah, do it better. Offsets have been really terrible in practice. And there's many people who compellingly argue that they're irredeemable. I respectfully disagree. And I'm excited to see many people continue to push the envelope. If we can make them successful, hell yeah. At the same time, uh, to my prior point, when folks are looking at their own dairy supply chain and saying, man, I got to deal with my suppliers, that's a lot more inspiring. We've also found some interesting other markets come up. So land funds, uh, for example, they're very quiet. They're not like consumer facing, but they're basically house flippers for soil. They buy crummy soils and regenerate them. And so their business model is the appreciation of the real asset, the land that they, that they bought. When you're a house flipper, you take pictures of the house before and after. And Yardstick is the photographer, so to speak. So they're keen on voluntary carbon markets as a potential revenue stream, but that's not the core premise of the business. And then fourthly, the research community. So we signed an $11 million contract earlier this year with a university that's just doing like a massive project to understand, hey, how do we do low carbon intensity beef? Again, many people could say like, beef is the problem. There's no such thing. And like, I don't know, I'm too much of a, with the blinders on capitalist to consider the more fundamental question, but anybody trying to make a crummy thing better is somebody I want to support. And so we're really stoked to be a research tool in that effort. And from a business model perspective, you mentioned you're not selling the probes. You mentioned you are a software company. Describe sort of how the business model works today. Yeah, we're a services company, is I think the way I would generalize. So we typically price on a per acre basis. Our customers think in terms of per acre. That's their P&L. And it's nice when your, your business can work with theirs. So our customers are thinking, what's the value from an acre and what are the costs? And we're part of the cost side of the equation. So we can also price on a per sample site basis, but it's just arithmetic to move between the two. 
what our customers are coming to us with is they're saying, here's a half a million acres. How do I get this done? We can embody that in like a subscription business model if we want, but that's just really like pricing and contracting jargon. What's important is that we're not selling spectrometers and we are boots on the ground. We have our own permanent field team here in the US. And so we sell a measurement experience because that's what our customers want. They don't want to touch anything. They're just like, I just need this thing done. Give me the numbers in a way I can trust. And the best way to meet them there is to say like, great, give me some field boundaries and I'll come back around when we've got that data to share. How quickly does soil carbon move? Not quickly. I was going to guess. Like you're talking years for these projects to start to show signs of performance, I'm guessing. Yeah, most natural systems move slowly. Like that's like kind of how a lot of nature works. And this is actually a central cultural conflict with a lot of the like climate tech world, which I love, and like the reality of Earth's ecologies, which more VC does not make soil carbon change faster. Another software developer can't make it go faster. And so there's a great tension between the moral and financial urgency of a lot of climate crisis thinking with soil's going to soil at its own pace. So measure, remeasure windows are measured on years. The short answer is, I don't know, three to five years. The more sophisticated answer is that your measurement, remeasurement window should really be a product of the magnitude of expected change, right? Imagine if something is changing very quickly, you can see it sooner. When your kid is four, you can measure them every two months and be like, wow, you're bigger. When your kid is 40, you're like, oh, I'll check in in a few years. So there is certainly theoretically the opportunity to measure soil carbon stock changes faster than that. But that's predicated on the success of a lot of these fancy carbon dust companies. Some of them will do it. But generally speaking, especially when you're looking at a change in management practice, a few years between measurement instances is reasonable. Carbon dust companies, meaning things like biochar, enhanced rock weathering, et cetera. Yeah, that's my perhaps unhelpful bucket for like all the fancy things. Which are promoting themselves as things that can speed this up. Exactly. Yeah. Or maybe not even speed it up, but just make it more reliable. Maybe it's fine if some of these things go at the current pace, but like, wouldn't it be great if we had really scalable, low cost ways to just keep it going at the current pace? And one of the criticisms of soil carbon is the permanency of it which is you could do all this stuff for five or six years, the land gets sold to someone else, they rip it up or till it or do whatever they, they do, and, and you've just destroyed all the progress that someone has essentially paid for. How do you reconcile that? Yeah, so there's two pieces. The first is like to accept it as a statement of ecological fact. That's fine. That's not the basis on which soil carbon is going to compete. And I think a lot of soil and nature-based people get really tied up in that and they feel like they need to like prove people wrong. And it's like, no, you don't. Things compete on different axes. The second is like, okay, well, granted, what do you do with it? The first thing is, I won't hold you to your exact language, but the kind of binary thinking that your own example just gave of like, and then it's all undone, doesn't actually reflect the literature. There's not evidence that like a single moment of tillage will undo years of soil like that. It's not that's what if that's not actually true in such extreme terms as that. And nonetheless, it's mostly non-soil scientists talking to each other about this stuff. So it's easy to generalize and I don't I don't shame you for it. Um, so that's number one. The second is, you know, what's not permanent a thousand years. The only thing that's permanent is like actually forever. Like a thousand years is not permanent. 
a thousand and one years is longer than a thousand years. So again, it's a false binary. False binaries are a product of a lot of systemic illness in culture. Like a lot of white supremacy thinking is about false binaries. The idea that there's like durability and not is itself false. That said, 20 years is a heck of a lot shorter than a thousand years. I think I just value immediacy and accessibility and cost more highly in the immediate term than many people who have devoted their careers to famously DAC. I love DAC. I hope DAC succeeds. Anybody who works on DAC knows that like, we won't have much of it for a decade or two, and that's fine. That's the risk that they need to accept. I'm just willing to accept that I'm working on something which has the blessing of being doable now, that leverages essentially unlimited free energy from the sun, and has this challenge of like, is it going to stick around? And how do we get it to stick around? I also think that within especially the climate tech Twitter bubble, uh, Frontier and Stripe dominate the conversation in ways that I don't fully understand. I don't think that they've really thought through the second order effects of what I would call an over-rotation on durability. They're all lovely people and they have advanced the conversation around CDR like masterfully. I, I so appreciate that. But right now, there are no Bloomberg front page articles about DAC because it, it wasn't around 30 years ago. So like, of course, it's only nature-based solutions with lower durability that rightly so get a lot of this criticism. I'm just focused on things that can serve the biggest emitters of the world. If you're willing, I'd love to include this particular plot in the show notes. And the x-axis is total emissions. The y-axis is total corporate profit per ton of emissions. And then each point is an industry. And the line starts in the top left and goes down to the right. And in the bottom right, there's a box. And the box is labeled 85% of global emissions and 10% of corporate profits. And all of that is below $100 of total corporate profit per ton. So folks are like, hey, why did Toyota like lead the round? That box is why. Because for all the incredibly important sector-leading conversation of a stripe and a frontier, it doesn't represent the actual carbon burden of the planet. The things we need to worry about are the bottom right. And the bottom right is best served by low cost. And at least for the next few decades, the only thing I can get excited about that's low cost is nature-based stuff that comes at the risk of lower durability. I absolutely accept it. I'm just trying to break down the false binary thinking of trees equals bad equals fire tomorrow. Don't bother. Well, and the big aha that I've had in this conversation personally is that a big chunk of your customer base is not necessarily trying to create a financial transaction and sell an offset to someone else. It's a company who's trying to improve their own practices and thus is incentivized to not undo the work they've already done. Absolutely. And bubbles and echo chambers. Like the US, myself included, myself as offender number one, tends to be incredibly ignorant about the rest of the world. I would encourage anybody interested in this to Google CBAM, Cross-Border Adjustment Mechanism. This is a fascinating piece of legislation from European Commission that basically says, if you want to sell into the EU, you do, there's a border tax on carbon. So all of a sudden, Organic Valley is like, I sure want to sell some yogurts to French people. Oh my gosh, I'm going to get hit with what fine? I mean, a fine tax. What tariff? If I have high carbon intensity compared to Argentinian yogurt or French yogurt, 
that's cool. That has nothing to do with offset markets per se. You could say it's adjacent because it's using the tools of economics for climate change. But like, man, that gets me excited. And it doesn't really care about VCM. All right. So that is a perfect segue to my next question for you, which is policy. And soil carbon, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't a big part of this huge package of climate policy that came out over the last few years, Inflation Reduction Act, infrastructure. It was. It was. Okay, please educate me. So IRA included maybe $20 billion for existing programs, which are typically called conservation. EQIP, EQIP, and CRP, you can Google them. And there's some very high quality criticism of them in terms of their climate rigor, which is justified. All things should always be made better. But there was also $300 million in IRA for soil carbon research that flagged measurement as a challenge. USDA NRCS hasn't explained how they intend to spend that. I think that's expected in, in Q4. It was a small piece of the puzzle, but the way you get IRA passed is get Republicans to at least like not want to die on the hill of it. And that means agriculture has got to be part of the conversation. So certainly less visible, but it very much was there. Not in the big tax credit sense of things, but in the funding for research and development sense of things. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really important. There is no 45Q for soil right now. There's a great debate about whether there should be. This gets into like DOE versus USDA, but you're absolutely right. There was nothing of that flavor in there. Do you think there will be some kind of climate farm bill type of thing in the future? I mean, you could argue every farm bill is a climate bill. It's just like, is it paying attention to the problem or not? The farm bill just expired. Um, so it's a five-year term. It's often not successfully renegotiated before the expiration of the prior one. And so they can, they do an extension. I wasn't around for the negotiation of the last farm bill because I was worried about ingestible sun protection at the time. But woe to the founder that thinks that their community is representative of the whole. Nonetheless, like, holy moly, there is so much momentum as evidenced by IRA, as evidenced by USDA Climate Smart Commodities. What's going on here is a better negotiation of, frankly, the Republican interest in agriculture to be less screwed and connecting that to climate messages insofar as it's palatable. Back to Christine Morgan and the Soil Health Institute. It may be more controversial to talk about CO2E or soil carbon stocks in Iowa, but it's not very controversial to talk about erosion and water infiltration. And so frankly, you can look at the soil health, soil carbon Venn diagram and be like, they're not 100% overlapping, but like, they're a lot more overlapping than a lot of other issues where I want bipartisan support. That's why, God forbid, Trump gets elected. Climate smart commodities isn't going anywhere. That's just like government pork. That is government handouts. They're just handouts towards essentially climate research. And you can read lots of high quality criticism about how climate smart commodities is just propping up big ag. And I'm like, yep, I don't know. Like, what do you want? I've made my peace with that. And that doesn't mean I've made my peace with it fully, but the way you get the agricultural lobby to recommend a program like Climate Smart Commodities is you make it fit with their existing worldview. That's why you've got a DAC effort in Wyoming. It's just you got to make it in their economic interest. People can say that I lack the activist spirit, that I've capitulated. They're probably right. But in some ways, like these are the tools I know how to work with. And I am thrilled that agricultural solutions to climate change can cross this divide. 
because it's big. And actually, back to your point about like, why this? It's a really cool kind of cultural political judo that soil carbon can do. That's important. And that might not be important if like your main job is to operate a spreadsheet that like balances durability of soil versus DAC. That's important in the real world, especially the real world of America. And I love that we can be a company that is exclusively focused on climate as our mission. And we can hang in a lot of agricultural contexts that many other climate companies, I think, would struggle to be a part of productively. On the note of working with the government, you all recently were selected for a significant USDA award. Maybe share a little bit about that. Unbelievably, it was not recently. It was almost a year ago. (laughs) But that's the speed that the government works at. That's the program I just mentioned, Climate Smart Commodities. And essentially, this is $3.1 billion of taxpayer money, that's important, to say, hey, commodities are the bulk of our emissions and the bulk of our agricultural economy, bulk of our ag emissions and ag economy. Let's start there. So USDA said, gigantic pot of money, bring me essentially research proposals for how you expect to demonstrate the opportunity of low carbon commodities, carbon intensity reduced, you know, grams per bushel, grams per liter of milk, whatever it is. There were 141 programs awarded. Half of those are big programs. We have seven awards across the whole cohort, more than any other measurement company, which I'm proud of. And our job across all of them is the same, measure soil carbon. Back to your point about we don't care, there is sustainable aviation fuel in there. There is biodiesel. There is agroforestry. There is novel grazing practices for beef. There's all these different projects. What they have in common is they got to measure soil carbon in order to do the total climate math of the project. And it's USDA foot in the bill, but it's revenue for us. That's real revenue. As an investor, you may not recognize it as a dollar for dollar because it's, it's kind of artificial revenue, but like pay is my salary. So we are thrilled to be out in front of that. We're thrilled for the visibility it gives us within USDA. I was on a call with Robert Bonney, the undersecretary who led Climate Smart Commodities the other day. And I was like, hi, I work at Yardstick. And he's like, I know who you are. And I was like, yeah, baby, (laughs) we're doing something right. Because that's what we want to work in. We want to work within the agricultural establishment, warts and all, and USDA, NRCS, as well as Department of Energy, because that's really where the company started are really important partners and I think bode well for our ability to click into uh, regulatory opportunities globally as well. And it was somewhere around 18 million that will see its way to Yardstick? Exactly, yeah. By the time it was negotiated, it was 16 because everybody got a little haircut. But that was also only of the first six awards that got announced. We've picked up a few more since then from projects that didn't scope in a measurement services provider or are unhappy with the one they did. So it'll be more than that. But yeah, call it 1618. And then, you know, other funding so far, you've uh, recently announced your Series A round of venture funding that Toyota Ventures led. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, that's been awesome. We raised pre-seed and a seed in 2021. So this is our first money since then. By the time this episode airs, I think it'll be announced that it's 12 million total instead of the the 10.6 we announced in August. And it's just a super cool group of folks. Toyota represents the hard to decarbonize bottom right of this chart, I hope we can post. Microsoft Climate Innovation Fund represents the top left of that. To their credit, for all their participation in Frontier, when you look at the bulk of Microsoft's buying, like it's nature-based stuff, because they've got like a blended town average price that they got to hit. You can't hit it without nature-based. They look at the market and they're like, wow, soil is like kind of shitty. I sure wish there were better measurement. And we're like, hi, (laughs) here we are. So that was thrilling that we could get them involved in the round. 
lower carbon, BEV, lots of awesome existing investors. The Nature Conservancy is a big win for us. Really, really proud. We basically want to show, again, the breadth of interest. Like, look how many different people believe that soil carbon data is essential to whatever it is you care about in climate. Decarbonization of agriculture, high quality offsets, the ability to use markets to incentivize conservation and nature restoration. That was a super thrilling, super scary. Q223 was a, a quarter, but we feel so, so encouraged by the awesome folks around the table. Well, Chris, we have covered so much. You've been an awesome guest. I, I really uh, enjoyed this conversation. What else should we have talked about? I think there's a open question rather than a solution, but one that I think it's important to reckon with in climate more generally, which is, especially in agriculture, like a racial and a land theft dimension to what's going on and has gone on. I bring that up not because like I know what yardsticks should do there, but all of agriculture in America is predicated on land theft. And so we're just like operating in a system that's sort of pretty morally compromised from the start. At Yardstick, I focus mostly on like my own personal transformation in terms of like racial awareness and a justice orientation rather than like, this is how it shows up in our product. And I think that's appropriate because I think especially a lot of white men like jump right to like, and here's how I'm fixing the problem, just like I'm fixing every other problem by myself. And we're also not in community with many farmers, ranchers of colors or, or indigenous folks. So I think it would be foolish for us to to say that we really know what solutions are. But the better all climate companies can reckon with the risk of climate solutions reinforcing unjust systems, at the very least, is just like table stakes to see that that's a thing that could happen and will happen unless we pay attention to it. So particularly, I think anybody in your audience who's keen to think about how companies in climate can do this better, both in terms of like company operations, like how we behave internally and company offering, like how we show up externally. That's something I'm especially keen to build community around because I think there's a lot of like de facto liberal political persuasion within climate that that's a good thing to think about, but understandably a lot of fear, especially on the part of white men who lead companies to be like, oof, I'm smart enough to know I should be thinking about this, but not so smart to know what's going on. And so I'm really eager to be in conversation with others that at the very least, again, want to acknowledge that those are the facts and find a way through it together. Thank you for sharing all that. And gosh, what a big topic that we could surely spend multiple episodes on, you know, just diving into. I'm glad you surfaced it. And I think it's a good thing for us to kind of maybe leave the episode on just for people to reflect on themselves as well as they go think about eating their next meal or going to the grocery store and finding where their food might come from. Um, it always comes from somewhere. Chris, I appreciate you. Thanks for all that you're doing. Thanks so much. Appreciate being on. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode. Thanks.